Well, Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for this time that we could gather together to worship you and to sing your praises, to express through song what you have placed in our hearts, our, our love for you because of you first loving us and sending your son to be the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that the work of grace that has begun in us continues by your indwelling presence. And we would pray that today, as we look into your word, that you would open our minds and hearts to receive the living word of God. And that it would feed us and encourage us and challenge us, um, Lord, to live and walk in newness of life so that Jesus Christ is glorified and that his church is built up to the glory of his name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this sermon this morning is Preserve Unity by living worthy of God's calling. I'm wondering, have you ever heard a Christian say to you, or maybe it's come out of your mouth, there goes a man or a woman who is living for and is walking with God. How do we come to such a conclusion how do we make such an evaluation of someone's life that way? Is it not by the evidence that they are actually living their lives for God? A person who receives such a, a high esteem is because they are actually practicing what they claim to be. My question to you this morning is this. Do you want to be a man or a woman living and walking with God? Because if you don't, this passage of Scripture will have little to no meaning to you. When Paul here at this juncture of his letter says, therefore, he evokes, if you will, everything that has proceeded before in his letter. Our election of God being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Our predestination as to the adoption as sons. We are now members of God's household all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Paul taught us very clearly that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were indeed under the powerful influence of our adversary, the devil, in this world. We were sons of disobedience, deserving of God's wrath. And as Paul explains to the Gentiles, they were completely cut off of the covenantal ties God had made with his chosen nation, Israel. They were, as we were, 
without hope and without God in the world. But in Christ Jesus and his atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins, we who were once far away, we were, who were once without hope in this world, are now reconciled to God. Both Jews and Gentiles alike, united by faith in the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says there in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. We are now joint heirs of God and of Christ. And we are being transformed by the truth of the, of the gospel of Christ. And through the Spirit, we are being transformed in understanding how great that love is. The height, the depth, the length, the width of the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. All under the enabling power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul says that we are being built up together into a dwelling place of God in the Holy Spirit. And as the church, we are charged to convey this God's master plan of salvation to the world. And it is to be also seen by the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is God's eternal purpose from all eternity and to all eternity that he would redeem and purchase with the blood of Christ a people of his own, his own possession, who would be zealous for good works. And therefore, we understand why this therefore is here at the beginning of chapter 4. For Paul, seeing himself as the prisoner of the Lord, notice, he's not saying the prisoner of Rome, he's saying the prisoner of the Lord for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's encouraging us as believers to conduct our lives in a matter worthy of the calling with which we have been called by God. As he points out in Romans chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we are the called in Jesus Christ. We are called as saints. And Paul shows by his own life and example, that being a true follower of Jesus Christ in the world, that it's going to cost us. And he is willing to pay the price. How about you? How about me? See, because Paul's call by God to gospel ministry meant that to do God's will in the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, it would mean that he could suffer persecution. 
of which he was experiencing. And all of us, as believers in Christ, are called also to be spirit-filled witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our day. Well, Paul goes some specifics about what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. How are we then to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of this calling? The first thing that we have to know is that it, there is no amount of effort by mere human will strength or personal resources, nor is there any kind of natural human ability that will ever do. This is the work of God's grace. This is by the supernatural power of God through his spirit. No amount of natural ability or will will ever be able to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in our lives so that the conduct of our lives lives worthy of the manner of our calling. No, this conduct to match this holy calling must come by God's grace. Which is the very grace that brought us to salvation in the first place. Paul urges us to trust God, God's love for us, God's power and his grace to live worthily of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are led and as we are empowered or energized by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Well, what are those spiritual virtues that will come from a life that is being lived out in a manner worthy of God's calling. I think Paul unfolds those in these subsequent verses. You see, Paul describes them as spiritual virtues that come from the Holy Spirit. Paul says there in verse 2 that in order for us to live worthy of our faith in Jesus Christ, we must be a people who are exuding, if you will, Christian humility. The reason why I call it Christian humility is because this term is coined by, coined first by Christians of that day. It does not appear as a virtue in Greek or Roman cultures, nor in their expressions during Paul's day. It can be interpreted as lowliness of mind and is one of the most foundational virtues that proves true conversion in Christ. Our Lord Jesus, during his Sermon of the Mount, describes a, a person who is indeed low in mind as one who is poor in spirit. And he says, those that are poor in spirit are blessed because that person has seized on his own spiritual bankruptcy. 
and his need of God's mercy and love and grace to enter into the kingdom of God. This is the very opposite of what our fallen culture supports. See, sinful man finds this virtue immediately repulsive. It's weak. It is useless. It is utterly lacking of any value. And this antagonism towards the virtue of humility is seen on television. It's read in our books. It is scorned by academic and business in education to the advancement worldwide. But my question to you this morning is this. Is not this hostile spirit toward humility evidence of self-rule, self-interest, self-fulfillment in the absence and in the defiance of God? Tell me, how many of your peers in business or at school or on a sports team would agree to join you in a training on how to become a humble person? I would say dare none would join you in that educational process. And yet, humility was personified in our Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry to the point, to the point, beloved, of his death by crucifixion. The Apostle Paul also had this quality in his life as he fulfilled his call to gospel ministry. In fact, he tells the elders at the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 19, that he was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came to him through the plots of the Jews. How key is humility in one's relationship with God? Just read what James says in James 4, verse 6. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When our Lord was asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus sets a child before them and gives this startling reply. Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The next virtue that he brings out here is gentleness. He says this particular virtue is characterized 
by true believers who are walking in a manner worthy of their calling. The word also can be translated meekness. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be gentle or meek does not mean weakness, but it's strength rightly channeled and under control by the Spirit. This virtue is first to be directed to God as we in faith accept God's will to be done under any circumstances of our lives. But it also has a second application to men, the people that we run into, even evil men, even those who inflict insult at us, even those who may even persecute us with physical pain and suffering or make accusations that are false against us. Because we know in the gentleness of wisdom of God that God is in control, that he has permitted and employed them for his purpose, which is ultimately for our good and for his glory. That's why the apostles, when they're sent into prison there in the book of Acts, you see them singing and praising God. Or when they're whipped and they're beat because of their faith in Christ and the expression of the gospel coming from their lips, they count it a, a joy, a thanksgiving that God would count them worthy for such suffering in the name of Christ. And even in Paul's defense there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the defense of his own apostleship in Christ, he appeals to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And of course, Paul later on in his life admonishes Timothy to not pursue the riches of the world, but tells him to flee from those things and be the man of God that God has called him to do, to be, to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. These paired together, humility and gentleness, really causes us to keep our focus on God and then on others but not on ourselves. It is the opposite of this self-interest and self-assertedness that is so much a part of our culture, which is so plentiful in the motives of even business in this world today. Beloved, it's really evidence of having the mind of Christ. The third Virtue that he brings out here is patience. It can be rendered long-suffering. This very word is used in Romans chapter 9, verse 22, and it speaks of God's great patience towards the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. Once again, Timothy, uh, 
Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, uh, describes himself as the worst of sinners, and yet God extending mercy on him so that he says Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And we do know, and we have learned, that patience comes through tribulations, sufferings, and troubles in life. In fact, James, in James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he exhorts us to be patient, to strengthen our hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The fourth virtue that he says will be present in a believer walking worthy of the calling with which he is called as a forbearance in love. He says, showing forbearance to one another in love. It is to love mercifully when wronged by another Christian. It is God's love that has been shed abroad in our hearts that enables us to forgive the wrong done by another Christian. It is exercising, if you will, loving restraint in hope of recovering what has been ruptured by sin. And let's face it, beloved, in this world, in our fleshly bodies, in this um, lifetime process of sanctification, we may offend one another. The offenses could generate quarrels and bitterness and hatred, even the claiming of our own rights when wrong, even craving revenge. But God, by his grace, his abundant grace, can give us the ability to forbear, to forgive, to bless, to respond by faith and love because of his holy calling on us. Do you know that God shows us his supreme act of loving forbearance when we read in Romans chapter 3 that he indeed passed over the sins that were previously committed? for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Because here... Paul describes how that will be lived out within the body of Christ. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. In verse 3 here, he makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 4 that indeed we need to be diligent in preserving the unity of the Spirit in that bond of peace. We are to continually make every effort to guard as well as maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That bond of peace, if you will, is that which glues and binds us together in love so that we preserve that holy oneness in the Lord. At one point in time, the Apostle Paul deals with the Corinthian church and they were scrapping over what was going on there and, and he tells them, then why not just be wronged? <laughs> why not just take it on the chin? Why not allow that person who's wronged you to be forgiven, basically? But we must interject this point. We are not saying here to preserve unity for unity's sake. And today, we hear espouse that many different roads lead to God. So let's just ignore the things that divide us by stressing the things that cultivate unity. Sounds good, doesn't it? But let me say, that type of unity at that price is not the unity that originates from God. You see, unity in the Spirit is based on biblical truth. It has a firm foundation built on doctrinal, moral, and ethical truths found in the Scriptures. And they are to be evidenced by us, the people of God, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and who are members of His body, the church. Ecumenicalism that disregards or deviates from the truth of the authority of the Bible to build a unity does not and cannot claim God's approval. You see, this verse envisions a God-honoring community of faith, united in biblical truth, with hearts that are full of the love of God and wanting to preserve the peace of God among the brethren. And this type of church unity must be persistently pursued and preserved by all the members of Christ's body. Let me ask you, this week, have you been an instrument in God's hand to preserve the unity of the body of Christ 
or have you, through your words and your actions and your attitudes, caused division within the body of Christ? There is no place for sibling rivalry in God's family. There is no place for striving for position or manipulation to get, it, to get ahead, if you will, at the expense of other brethren. These are the ways of the fallen world. To climb up the ladder of success, walking on the heads of others. These are sinful tactics that have no place within the church. Paul shows how important this unity is in verses 4 through 6. He tells us that this unity within the church is by God's design. And he does it through this seven levels explaining our oneness in Christ as the church. And since number seven is, in the Bible, the number of spiritual perfection, we do well to pay attention, close attention, to these principles of church unity. Because though we be a varied group from different walks of life and, and different experiences in life and maybe even at different levels of our understanding as uh, the body of Christ in regard to the scriptures, we need to understand that we are united in Christ to one body, and one spirit, and in one hope of our calling. This union is not flawed. It is powerful. It is dynamic. Because just as the body shows us that body, soul, and spirit signify, if you will, the unity of a man alive, so our union in God's church is to be alive through spiritual unity, being one body, by one spirit, in one hope of our calling. This is actually shows uh, in actual life um, in the uh, church in Corinth. If you'll turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and beginning at verse 20, Paul shows how this dynamic works out within the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 20. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which are deemed less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas for our presentable uh, members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, having more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if any member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice 
with it. This is the dynamic of the community of faith, the body of Christ, each member having a, an important part, even those that are presentable and those which are unseen. They are all important, even those who appear strong and those that appear weak. Each member of the body needs to be cared for, loved, and stay united under Christ. We, as the called of Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentiles, we all partake of this spiritual triad, if you will, of oneness by God's grace. God's call on us is secure in Christ. Our hope in Christ is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance which is imperishable, it's undefiled, it will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. God's divine oneness of body, spirit, and hope and calling is part of God's gift of grace to us, which we receive by faith alone and in Christ alone. The importance of keeping unity within the church is underscored throughout the scripture. Even as Paul has to deal with them in the Corinthian church, these schisms that festered within the church. And Paul teaches us that these divisions are sinful. They undermine, if you will, the union that we have in Christ. He asks these questions in verse 13 of chapter 1. Has Christ been divided? Paul has not been crucified for you, has he? We are, uh, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is so vitally important for us as believers in Christ today because there are many divisions that are existing within Christ's church. We need to be the people of God who preserve the unity of his church. He reminds us in 5 and 6, we have one Lord who is over all, as well as his church. We live by one faith in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves us and which keeps us living for God. We have one baptism that identifies us as God's new covenant and redeemed people in Christ. A baptism in the name of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we worship and serve one God who is sovereign creator. He is our heavenly Father who is of all, um, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This unity of our church in Christ in no way causes believers to feel like they are just a cog in the wheel. But rather, through faith activity, as members of the body of Christ, we cooperate in the Holy Spirit to help build up the church in love and to become God's agents of blessing in this world by the Holy Spirit giving us holy boldness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others, so that others 
outside of ourselves may be saved and be welcomed into this loving, unified fellowship, the family of God, which is called the church. How close should our oneness be and this unity be in Christ? Listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Remember he said, I'm coming to you, Father. But he has given us, his disciples, his word. And though that the world may hate them just as we... Uh, hate them as they hated me. He says, don't take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And then he says this in verse 18, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. And then he goes on, and he says, The glory which you have given me, verse 22, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. May God answer the, the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus so that we as the people of God might experience that perfecting of oneness that we are to share in as members of his body, the church. Amen.